HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Total Food Service. Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. Offered in print and digitally on TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Hey there, welcome to The Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today, we have food writer and cookbook author, David Leibovitz. Thank you so much for joining us from your Paris home. Uh, I lo- That's kind of one of, my f- one of my favorite parts about us recording remotely is the fact that we're able to chat with so many people uh, far and wide versus having to really like drag people to a physical studio. Well, I would be, I don't know if I want to be dragged to a studio, but I'm happy. <laughs> I'd be happy to come next time I'm in Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, I really want to dive in all about you. We have done a lot of stuff. Um, you've come to our studio. I've had you over for Shabbat dinner. And more importantly, we did a live not too long ago, uh, post-quarantine, where you were making recipes from your beautiful new cookbook, Drinking French. Um, But before we even dive into any of that, I really want to go to the beginning of you. Where are you from? How'd you get into food? And let's kind of like start at Chez Panin. Okay. Uh, Well, that wasn't where it started, but... um... The short answer to getting to Chez Panisse was I had been living in upstate New York in a very agricultural region, uh, working at a restaurant, working my way through college. And I was, this is like in the 80s or maybe the 80s. It was so long ago, I don't remember the year. Um, And we were cooking, you know, from food from the local farms before it was, uh, you know, buzzwords. Um, And I decided to move to San Francisco. And I thought, well, if I move to I'm going to move there and work in a restaurant. I want to work at the best restaurant in the city or in the country because Chez Panisse was getting a lot of acclaim in those. That was, you know, the beginning of California cuisine and getting a lot of recognition. So I moved to California with a suitcase or maybe two. Um, and I went in to apply for a job and they kicked me out. <laughs> I got yelled at and then kicked out. So. It was not a good beginning. (laughs) No, no. And then how'd you talk your way back in? Uh, Well, I went to go work somewhere else for six months. Gotcha. uh, And I, it was, it's now, the place I worked at is now a very good restaurant. Back then it was one of the junior California cuisine places. And I, it wasn't to be very, to be kind, it was not a pleasant experience. I wasn't treated super well, but I also didn't have a lot of experience and I was new. I'd never lived in a big city before, you know, I was in San Francisco and, you know, lots of stuff happening. Um, and I was, I was, uh, miserable. I, I was not a good fit for me. 
and I heard there was an opening at Chez Panisse because um, one of the chefs was leaving to open their own restaurant. So I ran over there and I got an interview and they hired me. Um, and people said to me, um, I did a trial shift and they said, okay, you're going to have an interview with Alice and you need to, here's what you need to tell her to get the job. And they're like, tell her you read Richard Olney and Elizabeth David. And, you know, they told me all this stuff. And of course I didn't do any, I didn't do any practice. I didn't do any prep. I was like, I need to go to a bookstore and find out who this Richard Olney guy is. Uh, so I didn't do any of that. And then I had my interview with Alice and she was like, well, what do you like to eat for dinner? I was like, well, I don't eat dinner because I'm a line cook. Cause I don't, you know, I, I, I'm a line cook. I don't have any food in my refrigerator except mustard. <laughs> so, um, and she was kind of looking at me like, who is this crazy person? And then um, we started talking. I said, well, one thing I love are salads. I love big green salads. And her, her whole, like, that was like the key for, she, Alice loves salad. I love salad too. And so I got hired. So that was my sort of long journey to get to Chez Panisse. And then I stayed there for 13 years, uh, working first upstairs in the cafe as a line cook, and then downstairs in the main kitchen is in the pastry department. And then did you ever, did you always love pastry? What kind of drew you to that <laughs> side of um, the kitchen? Well, when I was working at Chez Panisse, now, I was working upstairs in the cafe, as I mentioned, as a line cook. And this was when Chez Panisse was like all over the news. And from five o'clock when we opened, there was a line out the door till 1130 at night. People were, we were just mobbed and we were so busy. Um, we didn't take reservations in those days and people were crazy and waiting two hours, three hours drinking. And, um, and I was, I kept going down, I'd see the pastry people. I'd walk downstairs to get stuff from the refrigerator um, and I'd watch the pastry people working <clears throat> and they were doing all these things like making peach tarts and, you know, making raspberry ice cream and fraise de bois. And I started talking to them cause I was so intrigued. And I thought, well, first of all, this is so beautiful what they're doing. Um, second of all, it looks really easy. Like they're not all, <laughs> they're not all stressed out. Like we are with order, you know, tickets coming up every, you know, two seconds. And then I thought I kind of, in retrospect, I also thought, well, you know, I need to sort of specialize in something if I'm going to do this for a living. And, you know, you can be a doctor or you can be like a urologist. And, you know, every you know, specialists are always um, and more in demand. And I thought, well, I should probably, you know, think about maybe trying to get a, into the pastry department. So an opening uh, showed up. They had an opening. And it was me against somebody else who I worked with, a friend of mine. And she got the job, and I was very, 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 very upset. And so she worked for about three days and then quit because she was moving. <laughs> <laughs> Silver lining. If I ever see her, I'm going to say thank you for quitting because you you saved my you changed my life. Yeah. So that was uh, you know I stayed there for many years because it was such a great place. Uh, once you work at Chez Panisse, you know, it's, it's, you know, once again, all this stuff now is standard, you know, buying from farmers, local produce, but nobody was really doing this in those days. Um, and money was no object to Chez Panisse. If a neighbor had wild strawberries, we just bought them all. Uh, so, you know, it was sort of paradise in a way. Kind of and like then yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, when you you compare it to like test kitchens where that's kind of the exact same thing. Like, all right, well, what do we want to cook today? Well, what's good at the farmer's market? Things like that. Um, and I think that's such a... What what was that then like leaving Chez Panisse? Um, well, the, the downside of the job was it was a lot of work. You know, we, we worked yes. really hard. Um, you know, you're on your feet all the time. You're, you're, you know, you're not sitting down having meals. You know, it's like, oh, you must eat, you know, all this amazing food. It's like, yes, but I'm standing and I'm shoving it in my mouth while you know, <laughs> trying to cut cake and, you know, roll dough and so forth. So oh, 100%. I, was like, I was like, well, don't you get to stop? I'm like, well, you can't tell customers. No, you can't have dessert. 
because the pastry chef is like having lunch, you know. So, um, so you know, it's hard. And when I left, I didn't know what to do because I was, you know, not young anymore, and it's a physically strain. You know, you worked in test kitchens, and you know, it's strenuous on your body. And it's fine when you're young and, you know, you're on adrenaline, you're drinking coffee all night and wine and, you know, staying up, you know, with friends afterwards and going out and doing stuff. But we used to go bowling. Um, and, you know, I just was exhausted. And when I left, it was like my whole life stopped. I was like, what do I do now? Um, and I went to a career counseling uh, a group in San Francisco and the woman um, said they had that special a whole special section for law like people leaving the law field. I guess everybody goes to law school and they hate it. Uh, she's like they have a whole separate wing. But she said I'm seeing a lot of people your age that went into restaurant work and they don't know what to do when they get older. Um, so I had had all these great recipes and that I'd collected over the years. You know some were. A lot of things I made at Chez Panisse and so forth. And I suggested to Alice, I write, um, I said, well, I'd love to do like the shape, the next Chez Panisse dessert book. And she said, well, you know, you're very different than I am, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is nice. It's like Alice, Alice's idea of the perfect dessert is a clementine or a plate of dates. So, mm. um, which is great too, but I like yeah, as a snack. Yeah. I mean, I, I like everything except li black licorice. Um, so she said, you should write your own book. So I said, oh, okay. So I did. And I had a proposal and nobody bought it. Um, and I was studying martial arts. I was a martial artist for a long time, for like 30 years. And I was in the changing room once talking to somebody who was a writer. And I said, all these agents turned down my proposal and uh, editors. And he goes, why don't you talk to my agent? He He's like always hounding me for another proposal. So I sent my proposal to him. He called me the next day and then he sold the proposal the following day. So. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I think that's kind of one of my favorite parts of this podcast has been having all of these kind of incredible voices in the food world and everyone has a story of their first proposal getting rejected. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody gets rejected. Rejection is part of, it's like baking, you know, testing. You, you wrote, you sort of cookbook. You had to toss a lot of food to get to the good stuff because it didn't work. It wasn't right. Um, and, you, you know, maybe it's not the right fit. Um, I, what was funny was a couple of years later, you know, my books were starting to be successful. Um, everyone's like, oh, I'm sorry. I turned down your proposal. Da, da, da. I'm like, well, it's okay. Cause I ended up fine. So, um, but, you know, the interesting thing now is your people are so much more in control of their destiny with blogging, uh, podcasting. You know, people say, I want to write a book, but I can't get a publisher. I'm like, well, you, you can do it. You're, if you strongly believe in it, just do it and then publish it yourself or find a way to do it. Start a blog or whatever. That's what we did. That's what I did. You know, I started a, my blog in 1999. Everyone's like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm just writing recipes and putting them on the internet. And yeah. I was like, well, that's kind of like a waste of time. It's, you know, uh, what, what was your mindset during that? Like, wh who else was doing this? What was kind of your okay. thought, thought process behind it? Because right now, obviously, that's the, the first thing everyone goes to do. But yeah. I think this was at the very beginning. Well, okay, you, you have to promise not to laugh when I tell you. I will. I said, well, you know, my first book's coming out and it'll be a great, it'll be great to have a website where people can write to me if they have any questions or problems with the recipe, with the recipes. <laughs> it's like, you know, and that's like, be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, and now I just get tons of messages, you know, people like I'm trying to make so-and-so's recipe. It doesn't work or, you know, and, um, so it's a long story, but, you know, I basically blogged for seven years or six or seven years before anybody read my blog. You know, maybe it was five years. Um, it was very interesting because um, people say, how do I make people, you know, how do I have a successful blog? I'm like, well, do it for seven years with no readers. And then, you know, like it's like podcasting or anything nowadays. You just have to start it and do it. Um, yeah. And hope it works. 
and consistency. You know, you have to be committed and believe in what you're doing because um, it's not easy. You know, people see Madonna and they're like, oh, she's so successful. You know, I'm sure her life before she was successful was not fun. And when, you know, most people who are like that, you know, they it was hard. You know, they didn't just get discovered. They got to where they were, are or were or will be. <laughs> You know, now we have the internet. People can be famous for having, you know, having, you know, a nice body or so forth. And it's kind of a weird time as well. So uh, I think that's such a, such a great kind of reassuring thing to kind of see that someone like yourself, who was pretty much before um, your time in the sense of blogging, um, to kind of make an observation like that because I completely agree. I think that's such a, a... Well, like you're you're so good at this. I mean, you're on several different platforms. You have your own, you have the feed feed, but you're you're also authentic. Like I've met you in person and before I met you, people were talking and said, oh, he's really fun. You're going to love him. And you're who you are and you go out there and you do these things and you're sort of taking a risk in a lot of ways you know, you're sometimes posting things that are edgy or, but that's who you are. And that's how, that's what, that's who people are. You know, we're not yes. just, you know, we're not just presenting There's a lot of websites now that are Instagram accounts that have beautiful desserts and pastries and food. And that's a part of what we do. But the other part is us. Like, yeah. I think, you know, we're, you know, it's who we are and it's a good platform to do that. Um, and you're very, you know, we're people like, what we do and we're, you know, fortunate. Um, but we also, you know, we're putting work stuff out there. I used to speak at like seminars, like they used to have these blogging conferences and I would always tell people, I was like, you're not writing for you. You're writing for people. Like you're giving, baking is giving, cooking is giving, um, writing is giving, you're giving people a good story. You're giving people a good recipe. Um, don't think about what you get out of it. Think about what you give. Yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, a great way to put it. And I'd love to know what was your thought in the very beginning, especially about the kind of transition as someone who's also went from restaurants to media, the concept of cooking on the line versus then all of a sudden cooking for a home cook is a completely different ball game. What was that like and what was your approach to developing recipes in the very beginning? I think fortunately for me as a baker, um, you know, all my recipes made like 12 cakes or 14 tartos. Um, but, you know, most cookbooks, even, you know, I didn't read professional cookbooks. I read um, cookbooks by people like Alice Medrich, Flo Breaker, Marianne Cunningham, Nick Malgeri, um, who were writing for home cooks. So I was like, okay, I've got to, you know, pare everything down. Um, you know, the hardest thing for any professional baker to do when they're writing a cookbook for home cooks is um, time everything. Um, because, you know, everyone's like, well, I baked it for 10 minutes and you said nine and mine were just, you know, you should, it's like, well, you know, every oven is different and so forth. So I worked really hard. You know, I test recipes very um, heavily. I, I'm a big recipe tester. Um, you know, I, I get crazy about it too. Um, um, you know, it's important to have recipes that work. That's the main thing. Um, and, you know, you have to love what you're doing and it's work. My, my editor, um, she said to me recently, she goes, writing's too hard. That's why I'm an editor. She's like, it's too much work. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair. You know, the last book I wrote, Drinking French, I thought, oh, you know, because I'd written this book before that called La Parte about buying an apartment in Paris and renovating it. And um, it was a, it turned out to be a very difficult um, experience, sort of a comedy of errors about the comedy part. Um, but I had to make it fun and lively and interesting. Um, so I worked very hard on that and it was exhausting. You know, it's hard writing about yourself and being careful. I was trying to use the, I didn't want to make fun of France. This was, you know, the, the problem was nothing to do with France. I just happened to be, you know, live here. Um, so I wanted to make sure that the tone was right. And I thought, well, after that, I'm going to write a drinking book and I'm just going to make drinks all day and mix cocktails. <laughs> it's going to be fun. <laughs> and I was all of a sudden writing, you know, the, the subject 
I just got really into the subject and kept going. And that's where it took me to, you know, deeper depths of French drinks, culture, traditions, and so forth. Tell me a little bit more about what brought you to Paris. Um, well, uh, I'd written my first book and I think maybe my second one. And, um, people think like writing a cookbook is going to change your life. And this is once again, before the internet, when you can go out and promote it and so forth. And, you know, you're sort of at the whims of the media. And we're also about to have a very Paris experience. The garbage truck is coming by my apartment. So uh, <laughs> you might get really loud yeah. for a moment, but you might hear a lot of white models going into the recycling bin. Um, yeah. But um, what was the question again? About bringing you to Paris. So you just finished your first two cookbooks and you're promoting so it? Yeah. And, you know, the New York Times had written this really great article about the first one, which was amazing. Because, you know, back then, like the New York Times, oh my God, you know, we used to wait Wednesday for the newspaper to come out. Um, and, but, you know, a lot of, you know, then the seasons change and your book becomes last season's book. And I was like, well, what should I do with my life? Um, and my partner unexpectedly passed away. And I didn't, I'd been living in San Francisco 30 years. I had been through, you know, I'd been through being a line cook there. I had been through being... You know, Chez Panisse, part of that whole food revolution. I'd been through the AIDS crisis. Um, and I was like, you know what? Maybe it's time to move somewhere else. And I've always thought, well, Paris could be interesting. You know, I've been cooking French-inspired food and reading all these French cookbooks. Working. <laughs> so I basically had no idea what was involved in moving abroad. So I got rid of my house I sold everything and I arrived in Paris with two or three suitcases. And this was in the days where you were allowed to bring two or three suitcases. Nowadays, <laughs> I would have arrived with one because I didn't have any money. So, um, so that was very interesting. You know, I took a chance. You know, people write to me all the time and they're like, oh, I wish I could move to Paris. I'm like, well, you can, but you have to, you have to give up your, you know, three, three bedroom house, two cars and live in a 30 square foot room for 10 years like I did um, with, you know, bad internet. It was freezing in the winter, burning hot in the summer. You know, it was very French and people idealize living. It's like New York. It's always great to talk to New Yorkers because New Yorkers understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. New York's a great place, but it's tough. Um, yeah. You know, winters are cold, summer's hot, you know, the subway's a mess and so forth, but it's great. Um, you know, Paris is great, but you know, it's also a real city. So, you know, I didn't speak French. I moved here with no, you know, I didn't really have any friends here. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I just found this apartment and I was like, Oh, you know, and this is in the days like people didn't have internet in France. People thought it was weird. People were like, why do you want to have internet in your house? Like it'll steal your soul. I was like, you people are nuts. Now I'm like, oh, yeah, they were right. <laughs> yeah. Like it's very bad. It will steal your soul. I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> like, Hey, <laughs> um, but you know, I stayed, um, and I built a life for myself. I met people. Um, I started using my blog to write about my experiences here. Um, I met, a, I met a Frenchman who you've met as well. Walmart. Yes. And you speak French to him. And, I do too, because he doesn't speak English. So I had to learn French. <laughs> I'm still learning. Um, he's still correcting me. Uh, so. I love that. I mean, I go through that. I mean, especially my sister. Um, my sister's engaged to a man from Madrid uh, who luckily speaks English and obviously lives and works in New York. But I always think that that combination makes for much deeper bonding when you have to get past uh, communication on a new level. Well, that's true. Um, you know, I, somebody, there's an expression called the école horizontale, the horizontal school yeah. of learning. Um, and there's something to be said for that because they often tell you, like, the way to learn a language is to be passionate about a subject, like talk politics. Um, and in France, people love talking about politics and social issues. And, you know, they don't have, like, they don't discuss, like, Jennifer Aniston's hair or Ryan Gosling, <laughs> you know, new girlfriend. You know, 
these people are, you know, they, you go to a dinner party and people are talking about philosophy and so, you know, and I'm sitting there like, oh, you know, trying to like, did, did Jennifer Aniston like move to that new, did she get that new house or on my phone? So it's a different, you know, I had to learn to keep up in French, which, you know, it's a challenge. Um, you know, people think my life is easy because um, part of it is part of it's wonderful and the other part is all are all those challenges so you know you have a medical appointment and you don't understand what i had a doctor once and i couldn't understand what he was saying and it was serious and i said i need you i'm sorry i need to make an appointment come back with roman and roman's french and roman didn't understand what he was saying either <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Uh, this is not good but he was telling me all these things like you know you need to check your blood twice a day and it's if it's this it's very dangerous and you need to do this you need to give yourself and and i was like i need to understand all this stuff (laughs) yes yes well with with that we're going to take a quick break this episode is presented by total food service Total Food Service delivers the restaurant and food service industry's most comprehensive package of news and information. From day one of the COVID-19 crisis to today, the focus of Total Food Service has been to listen to the needs of their restaurant and food service readers. They were stunned by the endless stream of heartwarming stories. Restaurants everywhere were stepping up to feed hospitality workers and first responders while nimbly converting to takeout and delivery options. Total Food Service coverage has now moved to the planning forward stage. Offered in print and digitally at TotalFood.com, you'll receive the latest on the new normal. Need answers and solutions? Find them at TotalFood.com. So you're in France, and what was kind of the major um, change in terms of food, the way you ate and the way you cooked? Well, one, you know, when I moved here, people would say, well, what do you miss about America? And I would say the food. And they were so shocked. Um, and I was living in California, which if you, you know, you go to a farmer's market in California, it's like paradise. You know, there's seven yeah. kinds of onions, 14 kinds of oranges, you know, you know, 12 kinds of eggplants. It's paradise. And the French uh, food vocabulary is much more strict. They, they like certain things and they don't vary from them very often. You know, if you, like, everybody eats green beans. They love green beans. They like them steamed, steamed green beans. Um, I was behind this old lady at a supermarket a, a while back and she was buying a cauliflower and she was telling the cashier she was going to like, like bake it under bechamel and cheese. And I was like, oh, you know, you can roast it like on a roasting pan with spices. They were looking at me like I was completely crazy. They're like, like in the oven? I was like, yeah, just, you know, cut it up and put it on a sheet pan with some olive oil. They're like, olive oil? With, with cauliflower? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and that's, you know, not everybody, of course, is like that. But, you know, and the things have changed a lot in the last six or seven years. But when I moved here, it was still very provincial. Um, and, you know, my partner, I became a part of his family and his, his family, his parents were amazing. But they were also very, like, you had to have the right fork to go with the cake, which was a different fork, you know, not a salad fork. And there was cake plates and there were soup plates yes. and there was, you know, um, and it wasn't because they were snobby or bourgeois. It was, you know, they just, that's how French people eat. They eat in courses and they have special things for everything. So, you know, fortunately, I had a background in food and also being a pastry chef. You know, when people say, what do you do? And, you know, and if I said, I sell insurance, they'd be like, oh, yeah. I said, I'm a, I'm a pastry chef. And they're like, oh, la, la, oh, la, la. (laughs) (laughs) So they're like, where do you work? I'm like, "Uh, at home. (laughs) And they didn't quite understand, people didn't quite understand the internet. And And back in those days, the word blog was bad. Like if you were a blogger, you were like a bad person. Um, and then it became sort of you know, much more well-known, you know, and then it became being, you were bad again, and then it it changed. So <laughs> being a blogger is good and bad. Um, I, I I like to think what I do is good. Um, I'm not somebody who's, you know, 
I like to share my life and share recipes and so forth. I don't have an ulterior, and sell books too. But, um, you know, some people are in it to get traffic, to, you know, build their, you know, to make money. Um, I heard a story about a woman that she wanted to, her goal was to make more money than her husband, who was an attorney. And so she spent like a year studying search engine, you know, and all that stuff. I was like, well, that doesn't sound like much fun. Nothing like a spite blog. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know, you know, I mean, as you know, it's work. What we do is work, you know, recipes are work, having online profiles are work, but it's part of who we are and it's, we're fun and we like it. And I like seeing what you do on the internet. I like seeing what my friends do. I like readers. I like meeting, you know, hearing comments. I like meeting people from around the world and that's all great. Um, So it doesn't, you know, it's work, but it's, it's great. Um, I just don't have a, you know, I, I like to think, you know, most everyone's doing what they do because they love it, especially in the food world. I mean, when people complain about restaurants, um, only when restaurants are open right now or in the middle of the virus, um, people you say, well, you know, it's like nobody opens a restaurant to rip people off. Like Mm -hmm. I've never worked in a restaurant where someone's like, how can we make a lot of money tonight? What can we serve? Or, you know, I was like, people are really trying for the most part. So I'd like to think everyone's doing their best. And so obviously you have, I mean, no, I think that that's a a wonderful way to put it. So you're in Paris. You've obviously, you've written many cookbooks there. What was that like in terms of the kind of expansion of food media in America and you not being in the country yet still being such a huge force uh, and kind of still writing cookbooks and still being very much present um, even though you weren't physically here. Part of, I mean, I had a lot of things, some things were working in my favor, like blogging. Um, When other people started food blogging, and this is like 2004, um, they sort of gravitated toward me because I was somebody who sort of had a name already. And these are all people who were like Adam Roberts, amateur gourmet. Yeah. These just people who, and they were sort of happy to be, you know, they were like, oh, oh, wow, you know, in my orbit and vice versa. Not that I was anything. I was, I was admiring their blogs. I was like, wow, you guys are great. So we all sort of networked in that respect. Um, so that helped me build um, what I was doing um, and what they were doing too. Because in the old days, we were very supportive of each other. We, we were kind of like antique stores, you know, put us together and more people will come. <laughs> um, but also I... Being in Paris made me a little exotic. Um, Americans love France. They love Paris. Um, there's a love-hate relationship between the two countries in a way. We both, you know, both countries admire, both admire each other, but ultimately everybody, each, con- each country thinks their way is better. So, you know, all these people say, I want to move to Paris. I'm like, okay, you have to get rid of your house. You have to, you know pay taxes and do all this stuff and have neighbors who are mean and so forth. And, you know, it's like, oh, that's not what they signed up for. Um, But, you know, people want a reference in Paris. And for years, you know, there's always been someone like Julia Child, uh, Patricia Wells, uh, Susan Loomis, Dory Greenspan, uh, trying to think of who else, um, Anne Willen, um, so forth. And I I believe she was British, but she lived in America as well as she had a cooking school here in France. So Americans gravitate toward Paris, especially they're looking for tips on Paris, uh, places to go. And, you know, when I moved here, when I had my blog, I thought, well, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll write for food magazines in America and I will, you know, write about these little chocolate shops I'm discovering that are opening. And, you know, a couple of them were like, well, will you write about La Durée? And I was like, well, everyone's already written about them. Well, this is great little chocolate shop I just discovered, and this guy's making these. And they're like, okay, never mind. Um, and then one, one major magazine asked me, they go, oh, that sounds great. Send us a list of all these places. So I foolishly did. I didn't hear back. And then I wrote to them, and they go, oh, well, we assigned the article to our Paris correspondent. Oh, my God. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So I started writing about these places on my blog. Um, 
And because we, you know, also people hear talk, you hear stuff on the ground. This is before, once again, before Eater, before a lot of the internet. So like Patrick Roger chocolate shop, it was like, there's this new chocolate shop here in Paris. And I went there and I did a story about them and people would visit and start going. And they're like, oh my God, we thank you so much. And restaurants were opening. Um, so I was, you know, I happened to be at the right place at the right time doing the right thing with the right intentions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do, I do love the choice of saying intention um, just because I think that's come up a few times now and the idea behind you can't force it. So many people are, I, I see, kind of get into it for the idea behind yeah. what it means to be a writer or a blogger or a food personality in general and not understanding that it's just it's very much so like I always make the comparison to reality television of uh, there are people who are like meant to be reality TV stars and there are people who want to be stars and use reality TV as a platform and it just yeah. seems forced um, That's and why most people end up on like supermarket magazine covers like a year later you know, in rehab or having trouble because no. they wanted, they want to be celebrities. They became celebrities for the wrong reason. Um, in my opinion, I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but you often hear, you know, you hear about those people and, you know, they have a big, they're, they're huge for a few months and then it's on to the next person who's the contestant. So, you know, quality, the good thing about, you know, the quality usually lingers. Like we're, people are still using Julia Child's cookbooks. Yeah. Um, I still use Alice Medrich, you know, her chocolate cookbooks, you know, Tom Otto Lenghi's books. You know, these books are quality and they'll, they'll be with us for a while. Um, so you really seem to be someone who like dives into a subject and becomes an expert. Uh, having, obviously, you have become like the foremost expert on ice cream as well uh, with your book, Perfect Scoop. You did obviously the one on chocolate, Paris. That was a book that got turned down by a publisher, The ice, the Perfect Scoop, because um, the editor said that I didn't have a show on Food Network. Um, there you go. I got That's a super low advance for that, which is funny. Um, and it's like the world's best-selling ice cream book. <laughs> So, so so it got rejected and you ended up going somewhere else? Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to write this book and it wasn't to make you know money. I just thought, you know what I'm going to do? That. I wanted, I had this idea. I was like, someone needs to write like a basic ice cream book with all the swirls and mix-ins and basic recipes. And it just, it snowballed. Um, I love and that. The, yeah. And I mean, you know, you. It's, I, I mean, I, it's another, it's another example of intention. Your intention was to create a great ice cream book. Yeah. And that's what she did. Yeah. And, you know, I worked hard on it. Um, but it was it was funny because it was the first book um, that my publisher said. Um, actually, the book, when they had the acquisition meeting, they said it was the fastest book they ever acquired. Like, usually they discuss stuff. Um, and I also turned it in early. <laughs> it's like shocked. <laughs> And now I didn't realize that you're supposed to be late. You know, you're supposed to be like weeks late. Um, so I was like, I'm going to be early all the time. And it hasn't happened again, but um, it was great. You know, it was great. And the book was a hit and I revised it last year. And when I wrote, you know, my last book or a recent book is Drinking French. And I wanted to take a similar deep, I fell in love with the subject. I was like, this is a great subject that, hasn't really been explored the culture of French drinking traditions. And it wasn't supposed to be a cocktail book or anything. It's supposed to be about all the, the drinks. Like what are those green drinks people are sipping in cafes? You know, what are those red beers? You know, how do you make mint tea? You know, and so forth. So I loved writing this book. It was very, um, it was challenging because, you know, when you write a cookbook, you start testing recipes at like 8 a.m. Yeah. You know, you can't test cocktails at 8 a.m. <laughs> I was like, Is it time? can I start testing? It was like, you know, 9.45. I was like, what do I do? 
you, you just turn up, turn up in the morning. Um, what is going to be next? Like how, what is the process in terms of when you find a subject that you want to do this deep dive into? And is there anything on the horizon that you're looking to really explore? Um, there isn't. I'm kind of looking. I mean, the beauty of living in France is you get to retire. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, well, what's the point of living here if you're, if you're not retired? Because that's when like all this great stuff kicks in. Um, so we'll see. Um, my agent thought it would be interesting for me to write a travel book about places I've been or go am going to. Um, that obviously won't be happening for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. I went to the living room today, which is my kitchen, <laughs> and I went to my office, which is now Roman's office. Yeah. yeah. And I went to, you know, to the laundry room, which is the bedroom. So there's, I'm not doing that much right now. So I don't really have any plans. You know, the thing is when you write a book and it comes out, people ask you, they go, what's your next book? You're like, I just want to glide on this for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, when's your book coming out? The spring of next year. Okay. So when your book, you know, you'll... You want to, you know, you'll have summer and you'll talk about your book and people will be showering accolades on you. And, you know, you want to bathe in that. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, I feel like... If it's a dead, you like, you want to hide, but, you know, you know, <laughs> that you know how to write a book and you've been doing it a long time. Um, so obviously looking back at everything that you've done, you've mentioned a few times that people always ask you like, oh, well, I want to blog, I want to write cookbooks, what are kind of a few pieces of advice that you have kind of picked up along the way that you would give to anyone looking to kind of jump in? Okay. Um, be authentic because that's what people, it's, it's hard to lie. It's hard to create something and it's not interesting. Like be authentic, be yourself. Like my friend Elise who created Simply Recipes, huge food blog, that's really who she is. She's a wonderful person, practical, and so forth. Um, that's important. Be a nice person. Um, you meet the same people on the way down that you passed on the way up. Um, and I've been really fortunate because almost everybody I've met, um, well, actually, everybody I've met in the food business who's who have been successful um, have been great people. Um, and so that's that's always been really heart heart heartening for me, I guess you'd say, um, and treat people well. Um, it's amazing how, you know, sometimes I get people throw stuff at me and I'm like, wait, hold on. You know, I'm, I was raised to be very polite and they used to make fun of me and the rest and like the bus boys at Chez Panisse made fun of me because I was always saying thank you. And <laughs> maybe that's why I moved to France because I saw that politesse or politeness um, you're supposed to follow, but you know, be a good person. It's not that hard, but, you know, the world right now, especially is not, there's not, you know, we're seeing examples of the best of humanity and, you know, not so great stuff, you know, in the long run, I, I'm optimistic that good will always prevail. So be a good person, have good intentions, which I, I think you mentioned, I already mentioned a couple of times, but I think that's important. That's, it's a great, it's a the perfect word to define this conversation. And in, in general, I think someone's approach to food or writing as a whole, it's always about the intention. Every recipe you have an intent of like, what is the occasion? What is the kind of budget, yeah. vibe, feeling, everything about it has intention. Well, my whole thing, like when I'm testing a recipe, I'm like, does this taste good? Yeah. Is this good? And I'll make something over and over and over again. And like the photographer who worked, started working on my books with me, the first time he came over, he was like, oh my God. I was like, what? He's like, I never saw anyone test recipes like you do. Um, but, you know, in a, like you think a cocktail, will a teaspoon of lemon juice bring that drink alive? Oh, is it not good? Well, should I use a half ounce of this? You know, and you just keep testing till you get it right. Um, cause you want people to make your recipe and enjoy it. Um, that's so important. And one of the reasons my publisher, I started working with 10 speed, uh, this is years and years ago was the publisher said to me, she goes, well, we want to work with you cause your recipes work. 
And I said, well, don't all people, <laughs> they go, oh no, no, no. <laughs> so, um, you know, make sure your recipes work. Um, let's see, I was, I was talking to Deb Perlman the other day about this, especially with the confinement and people were all, you know, ingredients are precious. You don't want to tell someone to make a cake with two and a half cups of flour when they only have like a half a bag left and it not work. So, you know, that's another thing, you know, be respectful of people who are spending money buying your book, um, buying ingredients. Um, and, you know, a friend of mine, she, on her blog, Elise Bauer from Simply Recipes, once she made a mistake on one of her recipes and people made it and she made a contribution to a charity because she felt really bad, <laughs> which is, I mean, which is great, you know. She's like, well, I had, like, you know, people spent money on the ingredients, so I made a donation to it, um, which is the right, you know, once again, be a good That's person. 100%. Right person. Yeah. 100%. All right, well, this brings us into the lightning round, which is my favorite part, where I'm just going to ask Whoa. you a few questions. You didn't tell me about that. I know. It's, I, like to, I like to keep everyone on their toes. Um, okay. The first one is, who do you love? on Instagram right now? Who are you following? Could be someone random, non-food related, food related. Um, I like uh, Margot, who's a bartender at Combat in Paris. Um, I like uh, the pastry chef at the Ritz. I think he's really interesting. Um, and I can't think right off the top of my head. I help. Um, <laughs> I think who I'm always happy to see though when they when they upload things when they update things love it um obviously pre-quarantine when was the last time you were really just like floored by a meal um oh i went well i went to the ritz and i had tea there um they have this you know fancy tea it's expensive and you sit in this salon and mm. the pastry chef came out because we wanted to meet him and they brought us a, some extra desserts and it was incredible. They were all really good. And he was so nice. He spent two hours talking to me. So <laughs> I was like, wow. And I was thinking, you know, if I tell people to come here, they're going to be like, that's so expensive. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, it's like. There's a time and a place. You're sitting at the, at the Ritz in Paris eating pastry. It's, yeah, it's an experience. Yeah, 100%. Um, looking back at the incredible list of what is it nine cookbooks what have been some of your favorite recipes you've developed i'm not going to say like what are your favorite recipes but just some that come to your mind uh well the fresh ginger cake in ready for dessert is probably the, my most popular recipe and that's a wonderful recipe because it's a moist spicy ginger cake i love the chocolate sorbet and the perfect scoop um, you can make it non-dairy and it's just like the super chocolate um, dessert. Um, but I hate to say the word guilt-free, but there's no fat in it except from the cocoa powder, which is very little, um, but it's super chocolatey. And I love that sorbet. Um, so those are two that come off the top of my head at the moment. Um, I do like, I have a lot of, uh, I, I love my buckwheat chocolate chip cookies that are on my blog. I think those are great. Um, I love buckwheat and chocolate and salt and salted butter. So they have all my favorite things in them. Amazing. What is exciting you in the food space right now? It could be an ingredient. It could be a way that people are adapting to quarantine. It could be something from before quarantine. I think actually the quarantine thing is really interesting because people are adapting to it. Um, there's a lot less judgments about authenticity and things looking perfect. And now... You know, people are like looking at the refrigerators or looking at their grain drawers, or, you know, their, their kitchen drawers and finding like grains in there and making something out of them. Um, and that's what I'm doing, too. And it's kind of interesting um, writing about food from a from a view of not a lot of stuff. We're so used to everything being available that you have to really be conscious now when you're presenting a recipe can people make this? Is this going to be tone deaf? You know, I just put a cassoulet recipe on my site, but a simple one and it has duck confit and not everybody can get that. So I was sure to tell people, you know, this actually would work with bacon. It would work, you know, with chicken. It would, you know, so it's forcing me to be, to open my 
horizons a little more. And other people, too. I love that. And then this one will probably take you the most um, off guard, is every episode of the podcast, we play a game of Fuck, Mary Kill, um, but with foods or things that are applicable to the guest. So yours, obviously, based off the concept of cocktails, um, I picked a martini, a Negroni, and a Manhattan. Well, I would marry the Manhattan. Um, I would probably, the other two, let's see, probably fuck the martini and kill the Negroni. And I like Negronis, but I have trouble with drinks that have ice in them because I drink them really fast. Oh, and so, there you go. So I don't, yeah. So I'm, <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> Good answer. I love it. I mean, that I wasn't there. You didn't give me a dud. <laughs> I mean, I was I was gonna do something. It, it could have been. You've just done such varied books. I feel like this would have been also sultry with different desserts or ice cream flavors. But obviously, drinking French is on top of mind. Um, unless you think there's something super super avant garde from your book that people should know about that would fall in any of those categories. Oh. Well, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's, there's, you know, when people say, what's your favorite recipe from the book? It's like, ooh, you know, the salted butter caramel hot chocolate is really good. Um, but, you know, you have to be in hot chocolate, see, you know, ready for hot chocolate. And now I'm yeah. feeling kind of like tonight I want a rosemary gimlet. So, yeah. I that's, I think it. I'm going in the rosemary gimlet direction. Perfect. <laughs> I'm going to marry it. Amazing. And that's all. Thank you so much, David. This was so amazing to kind of hear this story, um, especially coming from you. And uh, I think to celebrate your new book while still looking back at the eight others has been really great for me as a fan of yours for so long. Ah, well, thanks. And I'm a fan of yours now, too. Um, so <laughs> Not just today, but after you made that lovely dinner for us and um, you had a, we had a nice party at your feed feed place as well. It was lo lovely. But it was great to talk to you. And I hope you're taking care of yourself. And I hope you guys are doing well at home. And I met your lovely mother as well. So you're fortunate to have her nearby. Yes, I really am. I really She's am. Well, um, send my love to Roman. Okay. Um, thank you all so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, you can head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Feed Feed and myself at Jay Cohen and David at David Leibowitz. Um, if you have a tip on who the next social media culinary star will be, send us a DM. We will see you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.